The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Two men with identities forged in the white hot fires of the 90s comic book boom, now ready to re examine the era where heroes became extreme and what magazine gave rise to a market of speculation. If you've got the guts, prepare to enter the world of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. Welcome, vile villains, crazed conquerors, and diabolical despots to a very special bonus episode of Wizards, the podcast guide to comics. We're ready to celebrate the worst of the worst as we examine the Wizard Dark Book 98, a sequel to the 1994 Wizard special publication, The Dark Book. I'm Adam, but you can call me Emperor Evilus Maximus von Genocide. <laughs> and I'm Mike. You can call me Mike. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so let's get this book started. It's all about the bad guys this time around. Interesting that Wizard decided to wait four years before putting out another one of these dark book issues. This time around, the cover featured an awesome rendition of Doctor Doom by Jim Lee. Hey there, geeks. Adam jumping in here after the fact, because as we posted about this episode going up, as you know, we have a lot of wizard staffers who follow the show and have participated in the show. They love to give us their behind-the-scenes insights. And Steve Blackwell, the former design manager of Wizard, reached out to us. He said, oh, did you discuss the Dark Book cover origins? And of course, we didn't know any other details other than it looks really cool and it's Jim Lee. And he said, there was a scramble for a cover. That piece was a personal sketch commissioned by Dan Riley that he had Jim Lee do years earlier that we had colored for this book. So it wasn't even something that they just imagined at the time this is going to be the cover of the dark book. They're like, what do we put? What's going to be on here? Hey, Dan, let's get that piece of yours, you know, colored and ready for print. So just a fun little behind the scenes detail. But Mike, what else was a part of this issue? And it included a poster of the dastardly DC villain Darkseid by Joe Quesada and Jimmy Palmiotti. Inside was the Create a Villain Thunderbolts contest, wherein the readers could submit a drawing and description of their original villainous creation that would then be judged by Kurt Busiek and Mark Bagley, the creative team behind Thunderbolts, who would then include the character in a future issue of the Marvel comic. So Adam, as a kid, did you ever draw your own superheroes and create villains for them to fight? Oh, 100%, man. My friends and I had our own comic book company in like fifth and sixth grade. We're getting together, doing our jam sessions. Hey, what are you working on over there? You know, we had our old bullpen in my friend's room. But yeah, so I created all sorts of very derivative superheroes that just look like, you know, it's like, it's the Punisher, but he's wearing a skull mask. And then I remember getting a Marvel Series 4 card where it's like, oh, they actually have a guy that's wearing a skull mask in a Punisher uniform. Okay. But the one big character I created was this guy called Nightblade. And, you know, he was very much a Batman type of thing, but he wore like this armor stuff. And his arch nemesis was a guy called the Psychotic. And he was just the Joker is essentially what he would have been. But his look was he wore a Hawaiian shirt. He had a metallic kind of like Kano from Mortal Kombat face mask on half of his face. And then he had long, wild brown hair. And he was just a maniac. But I just love the Hawaiian shirt aspect of this villain. Like, I don't know why I thought that was great. He was like, Nobody's going to expect that. (laughs) (laughs) 
this doesn't shock me in any way uh, based on your character's name even that you came up with for yourself <laughs> i i was not that kid i was taking batman and his characters and trying to create comics just of new stories with them i was like totally unoriginal as a kid it was all about taking the figures and creating stories with them so i was the opposite but it's funny you brought up, what was the character's name? The Blade? What was his name? Oh, Nightblade. Nightblade. Okay, so I was developing a movie a few years ago and wrote like three drafts of it. And it's all about this super villain world where it's just run by super villains. I can talk about it now because uh, the company that owned the rights to it, they went bankrupt and we got the rights back. I won't say too much, but the main character's villain name is is dark blade oh <laughs> it is a comedy that's why we were trying to like come up with characters that were spoofs on things but his name is dark blade so there must be something out there we need a, a dark blade or a night blade, blade you know <laughs> one of blade them. character yeah it sounds like it now unfortunately we're not going to find it in this uh, magazine that we're covering today but the dark book 98 kicks off with an interesting piece by nightwing writer chuck dixon called necessary evil wherein the veteran comic scribe offers his thesis that quote a heroic character and ultimately his whole franchise stands or falls on the strength of his villains the villain provides the contrast that every hero needs now this is a well-worn bit of storytelling wisdom right usually it's distilled down to the phrase a hero is only as good as their villain right we hear that all the time what isn't often heard however is dixon's next observation he says here quote speaking from bitter personal experience i think this whole contrast or lack Lack of contrast thing is why the Punisher plummeted so swiftly from the heights of popularity he was enjoying. A curious scenario played out every month. Whenever the Punisher appeared in another character's book, the sales went up. The sales of that book spiked higher than any of the Punisher's own titles. It's not until now that I realized that not only was the Punisher the villain on his own book, but he had no one to contrast with. We could have him battling to the death with some amoral, gun-crazed, homicidal maniac, but that description is the Punisher. By fighting some other established hero, he achieved what he lacked in his own book, a compelling conflict. So, Mike, what do you think about this idea that Frank Castle was actually the villain in the Punisher comics? That's an interesting look at it, but I, I still don't see him as the villain villain. Like, he really is a conflicted character. He's kind of, more, he's more dimensional than a good guy and more dimensional than a bad guy in some ways, but I do think it is interesting kind of the problem they've had with the character right if he's going against just villains that are one-dimensional what what do you do with it i don't know there, this is probably the best article in the entire dark book <laughs> what do you think adam well, I see, you know, what everybody always says, well, obviously he's psychologically damaged. He's, you know, he's out for vengeance because of the death of his family, all those things. But at the same time, like every time, you know, like Chuck Dixon is mentioning here, when he would appear in somebody else's book, they're afraid of him. They're like, dude, always. you got to calm down. Like, I'm here to stop you from killing people. It, it's okay to stop bad guys, but not to just shoot up every single guy who's in a mob meeting. You know, like it's, it's not okay for you to kill, 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 kill. I'm not a huge Punisher fan. Like, that's why I think I really liked it when we discussed the supernatural version of him. I, I prefer it, but I, I feel like I only know the Punisher through TV shows, movies, but probably the biggest one would have been uh, Spider-Man the Animated Series when they introduced him on there and he's after Morbius, right? Yeah. That's the one, that's the Punisher I like the best. 
<laughs> where he's not quite that evil. Well, he's he had just... all non-lethal, an yeah. arsenal of just like nets, whatever. I want to see that Punisher in the MCU. <laughs> I just think what it comes down to is if you decide it's not okay to kill, and that's the line, like Batman has that line, like all the heroes that are like traditional superheroes have that line, then, I mean, he is a villain. Whether he's killing a bad guy or not, that bad guy, possibly could have been rehabilitated and you took away that option so you're, he's basically, you're a villain he's basically dexter he's <laughs> a serial killer <laughs> all right the next article is uh masters of evil it's a six-page transcription of a multi-day planning session between kurt Busiek and alex ross as they work together to create an arch nemesis for the samaritan character from their astro city comic i have astro city sitting on my desk i've been waiting to read it and i've always heard great things my dad was a huge fan of it so i was excited to read about this character uh, Wizard reveals that the original transcript was 20,000 words long and could be read in its entirety on their American online page. Ooh, that brings me back. The pair begin by discussing the longest lasting villains of comic history and Ross makes an interesting observation. Quote, in most cases, your arch villain is going to be the visual opposite of your hero. Sometimes that's as simple as color. When Lex Luthor did wear a costume in the 70s, it was purple and green, the opposite of Superman. The same comparison is true for the Green Goblin and Spider-Man. Busiek sums it up bluntly by saying, yeah, they have to wear purple and green if they're going against red and blue guys. As a result, the pair decide to make the new villain the opposite of the Samaritan, who they describe as a time traveler that came back in time to prevent a terrible future by changing certain events in history. So it's decided that this villain would be an uh, Arabian mystic from the Middle Ages who traveled forward in time through alchemy, and they even consider calling him the alchemist. Other names they brainstormed include Devil God, Astrologian, Astromancer, Stargazer, or Heretic. But ultimately, they land on Infidel. Are you familiar with him? No. So I've read like the first yeah. year and a half of Astro City, but I mean, this is quite a few years after oh, that title originally okay. launched. So I'm sure he shows up, but I, I have not found this character yet, which we got to track it down like that and the Thunderbolts contest issue where the villain actually appears. We got to get those uh, into the archives. Here. I have to say that that design they show of him like riding a magic carpet that's the one where I, I was like i have to get into astro city now it's very striking and in fact when they're talking about the the specific look of the character ross abusic they say they decided to make the character bald and a black man again in a visual contrast to samaritan who is a white man with blue hair but showing some pretty impressive insight for the time i think as they discuss how it might be received Busick explains why infidel shouldn't be completely evil quote let's not introduce a major villain who's the first Arab at Astro City and he's a scumbag? I firmly believe there's a full range of morals and ethics in every culture. But if the first example you use is negative, people are more inclined to take offense. It's one thing to make this guy black because there are already a lot of black characters in Astro City that aren't scumbags. And I think making him a black guy is more interesting. Some interesting topics that nowadays I don't think you just put as bluntly as they do here, but it's nice to see that he just kind of that, that open understanding, you know, of culture, yeah. of 
of human beings, you know? So it feels very progressive, actually. Yeah. Now, Ross and Busick then have a very lengthy discussion on the backstory and motivations of the infidel. Like we say, this is a brainstorming thing. They're just going back and forth. But ultimately, they land on describing him as, quote, a traveler who spent time in Persia studying alchemy. The church declared him a heretic and tried to burn him at the stake. But he escaped and the experience made him decide that mankind is stupid and little more than cattle. Taking advantage of the right astrological arrangement of stars and planets, he escaped into the future, in the process becoming infused with Empyrean fire. He wound up in a desperate, horrible future and used his skills and power to become ruler. But when Samaritan changed to the future in the mid-80s, the timeline was wiped out. Since then, he's attempted to destabilize the world to create the desperation and disaster that would allow him to seize power once again, and Samaritan has opposed him. But just as Samaritan couldn't erase him, he can't erase Samaritan. The Empyrean fire protects them both. So they talk about this whole thing like, they're the constants in the universe. It's them. They've been battling for centuries, whatever it is, you know? So, Mike, as you see what they're coming up with what's your takeaway from this like collaborative brainstorming session as someone who's writing comic books now you have an artist you had to create designs for your characters like what's your experience been well, I just can't imagine working with Alex Ross. Like, Kurt <laughs> Busiek is so lucky. Like, I love Ishmael Hernandez is the artist on my book. But Ishmael lives in Spain, so it's a bit of a different relationship, right? While I do consider him a co-creator to an extent, like, every single thing he passes to me to make decisions on. Every character. I, it's never a collaborative, like, let, let's come up with this together. It's He doesn't have legs, cut off the ghost legs now that we're into arc two like ishmael's working on issue six and i'm writing issue seven and as he started to get into issue six and design new characters that i've created he started to throw in some things that he's now lending his creative story juices so to say to me like we have a character he's a psychic and he's trying to tap into this power that's very strong to the point that it's made him unable to walk like he's lost power of his legs because he uses his mind so much it's almost like a, a professor x kind of situation but it's not a superhero in any way so <laughs> But, you know, he he threw that idea out at me. I never saw him as a person in a wheelchair. And so I like now that I, we're getting to be more collaborative before every single detail about the character was up to me. I love collaborating and I can't imagine just sitting in a room with those two guys just... <laughs> Speaking of your collaboration, though, we should say, you know, you're talking about already down to issue six that you're planning to put it together. Yeah. But issue one is on its way to stores. So tell people, like, when can they expect it if they want to order it? Okay, so it is the final order cutoff is February 25th. So get your orders in now. Even if, Adam, you've read it. I tell people, like, it's fun. Like, it's, it's a Stranger Things type book. I've already had some calls with some studios about turning it into a possible movie or show. Very early discussions, if that interests anybody at all. But it is it is hopefully just a fun book. Read issue one. If you're not convinced by what Adam's about to say about it, message me directly or message Adam and I'll give you the first half of the book in PDF form just to see if you're like interested in it. I'm more than happy to do that. Just if you're like, I don't want to put down five bucks. It's a $4.99 comic. And if you're like, I don't want to risk $5, I understand. So I'll give you the first half of the first issue just yeah. to try it out. They take him up on that. <laughs> 
lot, guys. I will just say, you know, I, I've been lucky enough to get to read ahead. I'm in the inner circle here. And every single progressive issue, I was just like, oh my goodness, like there's so many twists I don't see coming. The characters are so enjoyable, but it's also cool. Like Mike is a big Thundercats fan. There's a little bit of Thundercats in this. Like you can sense that too. Like there's just some really, really interesting stories going on because it's supernatural, but it's also adventure. It's got a tinge of superhero, but it's not, you know, a superhero book per se. Honestly, guys, just check it out. Take a chance. If only for Mike, if you love the podcast, support it. But also I think, you know, you want to be in on the ground floor when it becomes, you know, a major motion picture. So <laughs> fingers crossed. You never know what could happen in Hollywood. I think there's yeah. an announcement every week about a comic turn being turned into a movie. So February but, yeah. 25th, guys, get in there and, and get and it then ordered. If you do not pre-order it before February 25th, comic shops will have some copies. I don't know how many. There is a Jay Lee foil variant cover that is one in five. So if a store orders five copies of the regular cover uh, by Nick Patera, they will get a free Jay Lee cover. So make sure your shop orders five copies at least. Get that Jay Lee cover. Yeah, there, and there are some great unexpected villains in the story as well, but our next story also has some maybe unexpected villains as we get into this because it's called A League of Their Own, and despite its name, it's not an essay framing Gina Davis and the Rockford Peaches as vivacious villains of baseball. Anybody? Huh? A League of Their Own? Okay. But instead, it's categorizing the different types of villains seen in comics. So, for example, former Spider-Man writer Todd DeZago identifies villains such as the Riddler, the Vulture, Stiltman, or Clue Master as petty thieves, since they just use the same gimmick over and over again to try and commit minor robberies with no ambition. Now, on the other side, robber barons such as the Kingpin, Lex Luthor, or Norman Osborn are described by Dan Jurgens as victims who have, quote, all suffered, and now for whatever reason, they're out to make other people victims as well. You know, they, they have this big corporate persona, but they're, you know, they're out there just to inflict suffering. Next up are the crazies, such as Joker and Carnage, whose edge is their unpredictability. According to Chuck Dixon, there he is again, quote, Batman has learned that there's no method to predicting the Joker's madness. There's no way you can stay one step ahead of crazies like him. All you can hope hope to do is react to what they've done and mop up the damage. Now next are the political zealots such as the Red Skull and Magneto who Wizard says quote aren't villains because they follow a different ideology but because they insist that you do too. And Mark Wade echoes this when he explains quote they have an unfailing sense of order but they tend to cross the line when they impose on the free will of others. And this is crazy so that's already like a bunch of categories and there are so many more. Wizard really put a lot of thought into this. <laughs> they went all out. It's it's actually a kind of handy guide. I think if you're writing probably like a Marvel or DC book, I would <laughs> this and be like, which villain am I going to create? Yeah. <laughs> One step beyond are the world conquerors along the lines of Dr. Doom, Baron Zemo, the leader, or Apocalypse. According to Peter David, quote, What makes them so strong is that they can't be held responsible for their actions. Nobody ever drags Apocalypse to justice, and no one ever throws the leader in jail. These villains are so powerful because of who they are and what they do that they never have to worry about mundane things like courts, jail, or punishment. They think they are supposed to rule the world, and they always want more, and that's what screws them up. On an even grander scale, the cosmic madmen like Darkseid, Thanos, Korvac, Despero, or the High Evolutionary have even bigger ambition. Godhood, according to Jim Starlin, quote, 
Thanos had the Infinity Gauntlet. So for all intents and purposes, he was God. That's what the High Evolutionary was trying to do with his new men. That's what Darkseid wants by aspiring to be the ruler of Apocalypse and New Genesis. They're all trying to reach divinity in their own way. Falling under the category of just plain evil are Mephisto, Malbolgia, Neuron, and Lucifer. Endowed with power from fiery underworlds, these frightening characters do have a weakness, according to Mark Wade. Quote, they always underestimate the power of the human spirit. Nobility and love are something these guys will never possess or understand. See, clean living does pay off. End quote. <laughs> Man, there's just there's just so much here to like to really dig into these characters. You're like, okay. And that's what I, I love that the comic book writers put so much thought into it that they could just like spout off like, well, this is how it works. This is where they're at. Okay, the list is still not done because the final category here, one more and that they decide here is forces of nature, almost unfathomable entities like Galactus, the Celestials, and the Endless are described as, quote, ancient, nigh-omnipotent, all-powerful, and unstoppable. They're not inherently good or evil. They just are. About the devourer of worlds, Peter David says, quote, Galactus will say, Galactus is above anger. Galactus is above good and evil. It's a tough concept for humans to get around, but he means it. He's as much to blame for a planet's destruction as an asteroid that crashes into it is. He's not evil, he's just doing what he's supposed to do. So, of all these categories, Mike, which style of villain do you feel is most threatening or maybe just most interesting when you're reading a story? Honestly, that depends on the protagonist. So the hero, what is the hero going through? I, that's the way I look at it when I when I write, especially. But like when Spider-Man goes up against, let's say, Thanos, it's less interesting to me because his issues are more, you know, grounded in reality to a degree. So you want a villain that would upset his daily routine, his school life, his job. So it depends on the character, Adam. I would. I, it's a hard. It's a hard one. Like as a human. The scariest would be like a Galactus because it's so powerful. And it, he's but only... I say he, because like Peter David said here, like he's inevitable. You can't even like conceive. So it's just like you feel like an ant. All of a sudden it's just like, okay, I'm done. <laughs> yeah, but that, that's scary to me. Like, uh, I, like I was looking up at the sky last night and I was like, oh my God, there's no other planet. This place could be well, destroyed me, any day. <laughs> I, I get worried by the robber barons. You know, I get worried <laughs> about these guys who have all this like influence and power and money so in our societies in our world they can control and make your life miserable i'd rather be squashed by galactus and it's over than have this guy messing with me all the time you know but i feel like we're already being messed with and i try to ignore them <laughs> well that's what i mean you have to accept it yeah you're like, i oh, accept oh. that you accept the inevitability of death in our universe <laughs> I think that's where I, I usually fall is like when the Kingpin messes up Matt Murdock's yeah. life or Norman Osborn can like change something for Peter Parker. I'm just like, oh man, because you're focused on me. You're so and powerful, but you're you're focused on me just because I tried to save the day once, you know. And let's be real. Those villains are more in line with disrupting the life of the hero, yeah. like more than anyone else, like on, on a personal level, on a thematic level. Going into the next article, we have Crossing the Line. It's an exploration of what has caused comic book villains to become even more violent and sadistic over the years. The writer of this piece, Craig Shutt, 
points out that many of the violent actions of villains during the 80s and 90s were similar to their original Golden Age counterparts of the 30s and 40s, a time when censorship was not an obstacle to pulp and comic book storytelling. Speaking from experience, DC editor Denny O'Neill comments about how this all changed in the 1950s with the institution of the Comics Code Authority. Quote, it was a repressive period. Many stories in the 50s and 60s showed villains doing things that shouldn't have occupied the attention of any reasonable crime fighter. Often, the villain's only crime was trying to uncover the hero's secret identity. If the hero hadn't won, there wouldn't have been any crime committed. It was unheard of for a villain to be doing villainous, rotten things. O'Neill admits to creating a stir and being partly responsible for bringing murder back into comics with his story, the Joker's five-way revenge in Batman number 25, and now a character as silly as Toy Man had become a child snatcher and killer. So, Adam, have you ever read this era of comic book stories and experienced the old style of evil deeds yeah i mean i've read like some old crime comics where you're like it's not even superhero comics but superhero comics came out of the crime comics but yeah it's just like they're killing people all over the place and it's like torture and people are chained up and like you know what i'm saying like they're you know you boil somebody in acid like it was pretty intense stuff in those early days it's like they're bad because they're literally like torturing people that i think a lot of people mostly stop at the silver age right like you go to the silver age but if you go of those books from the 30s you're like wow and i think maybe just it was a harsher world back then so you you people would just kind of be like hey i mean this stuff happens or maybe it wasn't as harsh but the writers are saying can you imagine something so terrible and now we just like eat it up in all our murder shows and true crime fiction that's interesting i'm not familiar with the golden age like books at all like i've never read any so to hear this it got that dark is pretty amazing meanwhile i feel like yes our society we have comics now where we really get into dark stuff again but we also baby kids so much more it's weird right protect them we're overprotective like i there's parents that won't let their kids walk around the, the block here in Toronto, you know, so maybe because we're surrounded by the bad stuff, we're way more protective, overprotective. Well, and, and I think it's just, be, you know, social media and everything else, like we're exposed, you know, 24 hour news, like you see everything so much more than back in the day when you yeah. lived in your little town and maybe you got a newspaper from the city, but you're like, oh, well, that happened in the city. But let's be, yeah, but also let's be real, like in the 20s, like kids would get hit by a, a car and it would just be things you'd see. My grandma used to tell me about hunting squirrels and just frying them in the front yard. <laughs> Wild, a different time. But now, Marvel editor Ralph Macchio justifies the bad guy's evolution to this more sick and twisted style of evil by stating, quote, comic book villains follow the trend of every other medium. The world has grown more ruthless, or at least we perceive it has. We live in a society of metal detectors in schools, so a jewelry heist isn't that dramatic. Heroes and villains are a reflection of their times, and we're certainly living in harsher times. So yeah, in the 90s, like I said, I I remember that being a huge thing kids are bringing weapons and guns to school so you have to have metal detectors and all that kind of stuff like that people couldn't believe that that was a thing happening you know now it is mentioned that the heroes themselves changed with the times to become grim and gritty causing their foes to have to be even darker to pose a threat as kurt busick explains quote when comics fans started leaning toward the punisher and wolverine as the types of heroes they wanted to read about and the heroes were using lethal force creating villains became tougher and then john Byrne adds quote a friend of mine suggested that readers today see the hero as being whoever is the last guy standing. In a world where the Punisher and Wolverine are viewed as heroes, who knows who's the villain? 
And again, these guys grew up reading comics in the 60s, you know, so to them, they're like, can you believe what, what's happened? Now, Walt Simonson provides one more reason the more established villains have to become more ruthless. Quote, if a villain comes back for the eighth or ninth time to do the same thing he did last time, there's no drama. He needs a bigger gun or a tougher attitude to make it more dramatic. He needs to up the ante. And Ralph Macchio puts it more bluntly, quote, it seems you have to blow up 20 bodies instead of the 10 you blew up last time to get any reaction. And John Byrne agrees, quote, We seem to have dug ourselves into such a ridiculous trench where we're always turning the volume up to 11. What happens when we peak and can't go any higher? So, Mike, again, this was the 90s. I mean, this is what, like, Image Comics was all about, right? And, and even, like, when they were at Marvel, what they were building to in the late 80s, early 90s. So, did that, like, gritted teeth, last man standing, ruthless villain type of story? Like, you said you weren't into The Punisher, but was there, like, an intense book that you remember reading and then maybe you got burned out eventually as you matured? Or I think I got burned out on all superhero comics back then because it, by the late 90s, I was just collecting Hellboy, Spawn, and Darkness. But like the Spawn, like Spawn to yeah. me, this book is just like ultraviolet. Like Spawn has always just got a, a bigger gun to blow away a demon that's It's ultraviolet, but I felt like there was, like, I don't think McFarlane's the best writer, but I felt like he was telling an interesting story that took twists and turns with hell and stuff. Like it wasn't just like me now with a big gun killing bad guy. Like I felt like there was some twists and plot twists in it. A bit more... There was a lot of tragedy with Spawn. Tragedy, yeah. Too. So... I don't know. It wasn't until the early 2000s in DC where they got more interesting and started doing interesting things with their villain. That that for me was a shift where I was totally out of superheroes and then DC brought me back into superheroes in the early 2000s. I, I think that's why I never bought into Image because like I, I wasn't buying those titles until they had something fun and silly like Gen 13. I feel like if I was like a couple years older and I had read Dark Knight Returns in the 80s and Watchmen and so like oh this is like so intense and so cool that I would have wanted more and more but because when I was getting into comics I was coming off of Spider-Man and his amazing friends I'm coming yeah. off of these like more you know watered down versions of superheroes I just I wasn't looking for extreme violence in any way so like I, I was just trying to think like did I ever buy a book that had that edge to it it was just like guys blowing stuff up and fighting all the time and I really didn't like it. I loved horror so I was attracted to anything with gore but I never felt like I, I guess maybe they did. Maybe I just wasn't ex exposing myself to it. I never felt like I could get like horror styled gore in a in a Wolverine book. So I didn't I avoided it. I could imagine that that, that yeah. would be something where it's just like, well, he's slicing people up, but it's not like Marvel's never going to take it to the extreme. Yeah, it's not spawn levels of violence. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I was really, you know, as a teenager, I was really wanting that violence. I don't know why, but I. <laughs> All right. When asked how to make this current crop of villains into more than just ruthless killers, Mark Wade suggests, quote, I would separate ruthless and killers. Villains don't have to be killers to be ruthless, but it takes cleverness and an investment in brain power to make those villains interesting. In this vein, uh, John Byrne references his Metropolis 900 Miles backup story from Superman number nine, where Lex Luthor offered a waitress at a roadside diner one million to spend a month with him, but leaves before she makes her decision. It's revealed that Lex has done this repeatedly up and down the highway to torment waitresses 
forcing them to wonder how their lives could have changed if they had accepted the deal. I have the full burn Superman run and I have not read it. And now I must jump into it, Adam. According to Byrne, quote, readers have told me that they thought Luther was more evil in that story than in anything else they've ever read. I want to see that in the Superman legacy movie. Yeah, absolutely. But just put that, that's the opening scene with Lex to establish how terrible he is. Yeah. Yeah. According to Walt Simonson, quote, I think we're selling to the same audience over and over. It might be easier to invent new characters if we want to cut back on the nastiness level. Adam, when do you think mainstream comics did a course correction on outrageously violent villains? I always look at Identity Crisis as like a real turning point where like they said like, okay, it's not going to be violence, but what Dr. Light did and all that kind of stuff, you're like, wow. Like it, it's kind of like what Lex Luthor is doing here. Like you're just messing with people's lives in a huge way and look at the ripple effect and all it destroys. And I feel like that's what like 2000s comics, that was the, the course correction they were doing is they're just like, we're not going to just like shoot somebody and now they're a bad guy because they killed all these people. You know, it's like they're going to leave the person alive but ruin everything about them and now the heroes are trying to sort that total, out total psychological manipulation on the villains part they became more interesting in their tactics it wasn't yeah. about let's i'm just gonna blow up the city it was really manipulating the characters all right our next piece here bad boys is a ranking of the top 10 coolest villains of all time now just for fun we're gonna compare this to the bad company top 10 most dangerous villains list we just covered from issue 87 on the main show and just for context so this issue came out in january 1998 while issue 87 was october 1998 so we're just getting to this kind of late so it's just like they're basically doing the same list but a 10 months apart i'm know? happy we're doing this because i was so frustrated reading this and realizing they can't they've changed their mind in a couple places <laughs> Yeah, so number 10 is the Taskmaster, who would actually be relegated to the Wicked Wannabes list by the end of the year. So they're in this one, they're giving him a whole profile. They're like, he's cool. Like, they, they mentioned what he's capable of, but they obviously didn't have a lot of respect for him by the time they had to make a final decision months down the road. Now, number 9, though, is Doomsday, who jumped up in their eyes to the number 5 spot when it came to danger level, but he's cool enough to make this list. Now, number 8, I thought was really interesting was Ozymandias from Watchmen, who's not even mentioned in the Bad Company ranking. So like, he wasn't a wannabe, he was just not even in the running. Number seven is another one who's missing from the later list, Kid Miracle Man, who if you've read, you know, his big reveal, he does some pretty gruesome stuff in the Alan Moore stories, just to human beings. You know, he's like ripping people's flesh off. I mean, he's, he's bad news. Number six is Green Goblin, who again, gets relegated to being a wannabe like here they're giving like this is why he's great this is why he's cool then they're like eh, nobody cares about green goblin anymore it's like that's crazy to do that big a switch and then coming in at number five this time is thanos who was number four on the most dangerous list from issue 87 kingpin is the fourth place winner who was called a poor man's lex luther only fatter just nine months later matching his ranking on the bad company list magneto comes in at number three for cool factor while number two is the joker who only arrived at the number seven spot on the most dangerous list but of course there's only one bad guy going home with the gold and seeing as how he also ranked number one on the most dangerous villains list of course the coolest villain is dr doom 
Adam, which list do you feel has the best representation? I like the variety in this list because to have somebody like Ozymandias, you're kind of like, yeah, I mean, again, he's a more low-key villain and it makes you think. I do think it was interesting that back-to-back, it's two Alan Moore uh, created characters on the list as well. So I, I think I'm more in line with this one. I just think the Doctor Doom thing, because they take this like to the extreme where eventually Doctor Doom, they have a costumed character in the office they take photos of. He takes over an entire issue of the magazine at one point. So like, they just loved Doctor Doom. No matter what, he's going to be their top guy. So. I, I like that it started with Taskmaster, I have to say, because I think he is kind of a cool character and they called him a wannabe in the previous one. And I don't know if I agreed with that. I like this list better. Everything, Like you said, it's a, a nice mix. <laughs> they love Doctor Doom. I know lots of people do, Adams. I think he deserves the top spot. <laughs> I mean, he's very entertaining in addition yeah. to being diabolical, and he's accomplished so much. I mean, the one thing everybody points out, you know, when we posted the last list on social media, they're like, he's achieved godhood. He took the yeah. Beyonder's power from him. If only That's for- what they bring it up. They bring that up in yeah. here. Yeah, and the Green Goblin was also a wannabe by years end as well i i I just don't know if like the the spider-man universe's stock had dropped in their eyes by that point you know maybe now looking at the next article uh, it's called enemy mine it's a comparison between the rogues galleries of comics top superheroes for example spider-man's worst enemies are described as psychopaths many of whom have a direct personal connection to him Marvel editor Ralph Macchio points out that, quote, we've seen so much of characters like Dr. Octopus over the years that we forget how truly interesting these characters are. We've seen them for 30 years, so we don't give it a second thought. But who comes up with things like this anymore? Adam, do you think it's more or less effective to have villains so closely tied to the personal life of a hero? What I like about Spider-Man's villains, like, yes, like they tend to hate Peter Parker if they know his identity or they hate Spider-Man. So they're going to try to lure him in and they set things up around him. But I also like that his villains, you know, aside from probably the Green Goblin, like could really exist anywhere in the Marvel Universe and do have interactions with other people. Like, I remember, like, back in the day picking up a Captain America comic with Dr. Octopus and it blew my mind. I was like, he's not only fighting Spider-Man. Sandman, too, would show up randomly. Yeah, he was like an Avenger at one point. You're just like, what? I think it's effective, but... I, like I say, I want them to have a life outside of just the one hero they torment because it makes them seem more imposing. It makes it seem like they have more to offer than just like, well, you know, if their every waking moment is obsessed with one person, it's it's less cool. You know, it's, it's just a one like, note. Yeah. And then you go back to one of the writer's previous comments where it's like, all you're doing is upping the ante. Oh, well, now Dr. Octopus has to kill more people. To make it interesting. Yeah. yeah. Now, and what they've done, you know, fairly recently when Dr. Octopus became Spider-Man. <laughs> like, that's awesome. Like, that's a yeah, great Yeah, that's good thing. stuff. Yeah. Batman and uh, the Arkham Asylum inmates are next to be examined, this time by Chuck Dixon, who explains his position that, quote, personality-wise, they're all dark reflections of parts of Bruce Wayne's life. If he didn't have Robin and Alfred to underpin him, he'd be a lone psycho, just like them. I think he would have got over the line like Harvey Dent did, without someone to anchor him. I guess Joker's the best one because he's the opposite of Batman. His life is ruled by chaos. Now, DC editor Scott
Peterson elaborates on that. He says, quote, the Joker reinvents himself every morning. And that's the opposite of Batman. Batman has one sole purpose in life. Every day he knows what he's going to do when he gets up. They're made to be arch enemies. So again, just like with the Punisher, Chuck Dixon called him the villain. Do you think that Batman is, you know, obsessed enough to be just one step away from becoming a villain himself? No, not at all. One of the main criticisms of Batman v Superman wasn't it that he was like branding villains and then yeah. the inmates would kill them or whatever i never see him becoming a villain even even that doesn't seem villainous yeah his obsessiveness i yeah. think relates to his morality to the point where he's just like i'm obsessed with what is right i don't want these bad things to happen and i would never do the bad things even in the name of justice because it would break him psychologically to step over that line you know so i don't because I, I, I mean i know there have been stories like where he took venom to get amped up and have more power and he was kind of like it was messing with his mind and stuff so he's taken steps towards that but uh you know yes robin and alfred and his you know dr leslie Tompkins or whoever like is in his circle can pull him back here and there if he's getting too far gone but i never worry about batman becoming a villain even in his most intense moments yeah even when he's branding bad guys yeah (laughs) (laughs) all right now let's step into an examination of the x-men villains um So it is called into question by X-Men writer Stephen T. Siegel, who explains, quote, a lot of the villains in the X-Men aren't so much villains in the sense of the world conquering I want to do evil. They're a a lot more like Malcolm X, forces for social change. And because they're radical in the way they proceed, they're viewed as villains. Adam, how do you feel about the villain who doesn't think they're actually a villain? It's more compelling because they have an ideology and say, well, I'm going to force you to do this with violence or whatever, you know, scare you into doing what I want. The only thing I don't like about it in X-Men is it feels like every villain is that. Like he's saying here, like everybody's like some sort of like mutant freedom force or the acolyte of Magneto or whatever. And so I'm just like, I understand that that is the X-Men struggle, but then their whole thing is like, oh, well, we're just going to tamp down people that are more extreme than us. We're the baseline and we don't like how they're doing it. So we're going to bring it's just like it gets old for me really fast. Like, yes, sometimes they go to space and they're saving the universe in space or something like that. But I I think they're a little one note for me because of their villains being like, oh, but you just, you know, you need to understand where I'm coming from. Like we do, but stop killing people, you know? Yeah, I'd have to agree with you there. Like the metaphor gets tired after a while. Now, Superman's list of enemies has traditionally been lackluster, according to Dan Jurgens, who says, quote, what Superman has always had is a lot of villains who are just guys in business suits. Wizard then asks why Lex Luthor is considered Superman's arch nemesis. He says, quote, it's his intelligence and the fact that he is completely devious. He's able to get away with anything because he's more or less untouchable. So that makes him a good match for Superman, even though he has no power. Powers. So I feel like we've been talking a lot about Lex Luthor lately, Mike. We're doing Superman for all seasons. He keeps coming up on these lists and he's always referenced like he makes an impact. But do you feel like Dan Jurgens is saying here, his mere mortal status makes him the perfect foil? for Superman, who could do anything. And Lex yeah. Luthor has to work within humanity. I, I think it's a perfect foil because it's like he could snap his neck any second. 
but he doesn't. And Lex Luthor uses that to his advantage, right? So Yeah, I mean, that's I, the, I mean, the most frustrating thing. You know, he's just like, oh, it could, it'd be so easy to burn your head off. These characters are so pure. You know they would. If it was real, Lex would be dead. But I think <laughs> it's also interesting because I don't think it's emphasized so often. I feel like it was emphasized more in the Silver Age. But like Superman is also super intelligent. Like he understands all these things too. And so Lex Luthor is like, you know, the peak supposedly kind of of humanity's intelligence. I feel like they've pulled back on that. Like, I don't get that sense now that Superman is as intelligent as Lex. Like, I feel like Lex has the mind and Superman has the brawn, but he's not dumb. But I just think that's much more interesting. Like, Superman being super intelligent, what can he do with that? You know, yeah. there's always the thing like, well, yeah, he could solve world hunger or whatever, you know, but it's he's not here to take over for humanity. And I, I'm almost certain there have been stories that are elseworlds where he does. Continuing on, it's argued that the Fantastic Four has the cream of the crop in terms of big bads, as far as Scott Lobdell is concerned. Quote, the Fantastic Four hands down has the coolest rogues gallery this side of Batman. They have the ultimate supervillain, Doctor Doom. There he is again, Adam. They have the ultimate cosmic threat, which is Galactus. They have the coolest hidden world villains, whether it's Mole Man, Namor, and Atuma from Atlantis. If you want to go for super smart crime lord, the wizard could outthink Lex Luthor any day of the month. End quote. Adam, they claim to be the world's greatest comic magazine. Do you think they have the greatest rogues gallery? Scott it's crazy? kind of hard to argue from the perspective of like the breadth of the type of villains mm -hmm. that they have fought. Because like you're saying, yeah, you have Doctor Doom, you have Galactus, Namor under the ocean, and like other dimensions they mentioned in the article too, like Annihilus, I think that's how you say his name, from another dimension. So like everybody hates them because they're always following their plans. So like they're, they're very impressive villains, but I don't know, like outside of, you know, Doctor Doom's rivalry with Reed Richards and all of that, I don't know if I say they're the most compelling villains i guess like namor if you consider him a villain especially in those early days very interesting the love triangle with sue his whole thing most of the world is my kingdom i'm just trying to defend it like there's a lot of cool stuff in there but then yeah the wizard is... i don't know who that is i honestly was he in the cartoon series <laughs> oh i'm sure he, yeah he had an action figure i'm almost sure he has like a big helmet thing and like this oh it's that guy yeah yeah okay overall like their villains i mean steven sapelis you know our former co-host on the podcast he just loves it he's he's gonna be debating this with us offline i'm sure now this is what you're gonna know more about mike than me but spawn you know relatively is the new kid on the block compared to all these other heroes we've been talking about but his villains they say might just be the most disturbing according to creator todd mcfarlane though al simmons is missing something in his rogues gallery quote i think i'm kind of missing a direct match for him you know jason wins human and theoretically spawn could just rip his head off and the clown brings a black sense of humor but he turns into a 10-foot demon he isn't really human it's always hard to create kind of your three or four core bad guys the reason it gets tough to create good builds is because you have to have him back enough times that you don't overdo it but you have to bring it back enough so people care about him so mike as you were reading spawn kind of from the beginning and moving forward as the series is evolving do you feel like he had a recurring villain of equal power to face off against i don't know i wonder what issue they would have been at during this time frame because i you know 
like Angela wasn't really a villain of his, but was of equal power, I feel like. But mm-hmm. they kind of had a love thing going on. I really am due for a reread of all of the spawns. I kind of dropped off around 120. I stopped reading it, but I kept collecting. Redeemer, I, and I don't think they call him Redeemer anymore. Uh, I, I think he lost the rights or something but it it was like the heavens version of the spawns always felt like a good antagonist for him or overkill who who has been showing up more recently in the spawn books he's like that big robot guy like they hit a few here and there i felt like what i liked about spawn is his villains weren't like of equal power they were like weird they were like psychotic killers and it was he just had to just kill them yeah, a lot of times, like, serial killers are just, serial like, killers. criminals that were terrible people, you know? Yeah, like the freak, right? You know? And then they also had Tremor at one point, and Tremors come back and forth a few times. It's always when it's facing off against God's people that is interesting to me. Okay, yeah. Because yeah. I, I always wondered about that, because it seems like what Todd is trying to say here is, like, I need the antithesis of Spawn, like this other side who who matches him. Is Redeemer the one who's in, like, the armor and has, like, the cross? Kind he has, of? like, a cross on his face, the gold Yeah, cross. okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but so... they call him something else later. And he's in the new comics. Like, he's in the new series. It's just I haven't really been reading it. Okay. It's, a bit of a, it's a bit of a slog to read. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, The JLA might not have enough villains to fill their roster of rogues, according to Grant Morrison. Quote, I'm not sure if there's really been a big rogues gallery for the JLA. That's something I'm trying to address. So I've just had to create all sorts of new villains and sort of revamp the more interesting old ones. The main thing with the JLA is that it has to take place on this huge grand scale. I keep looking at the criteria of, are they big enough to alter the universe? The best JLA villains seem to be guys like the crime syndicate of Earth 3, who are just the Justice League, but bad guys. It's just looking at different angles of what the JLA could have become if they'd gone down the wrong road. Adam, now that you've seen these villains stacked up against each other, which hero has the best rogues gallery, in your opinion? And do you feel that JLA is the worst? <laughs> Let's just get that out there. <laughs> I mean, I, I can't. When we did the JLA special a while back and they were trying to identify their various villains, it was like, okay, well, most of these were created by Grant Morrison or made interesting by Grant Morrison. And, and otherwise, they're like, you know, Despero. I'm like, Despero? Like, I, I, I wasn't reading the older JLA comics, I guess, and Starro, you know, who they call in this issue. He's now called Star Conqueror. Actually, <laughs> it didn't sound so ridiculous. You know, I, I always want to go back to Spider-Man's rogues gallery, but at the same time, when you look, especially for those first, you know, 20 odd years where every character was an animal name, and you're just like, it's kind of ridiculous. Like the Rhino, the Scorpion, and Kangaroo that we're going to talk about in a minute here. Just like the Grizzly. Like just all these characters that just got kind of stupid in the in the Spider-Man universe. But I feel like Batman's rogues gallery, even when they were sort of ridiculous, they were always interesting. And they were all very distinct and different. And you can like understand their motivations, you know, except for the Joker, whose whole concept is no motivation, you know? Like most people i think fall back on batman's rogues galleries being the best and i think there's a reason for that it's just like again with all these comparisons i'm just like yeah but nobody matches up (laughs) what do you think though (laughs) the thing that i realized after reading this article more than anything was i think about the heroes that i actually don't know any of the rogues like i can't name a single but but it has to do with the fact that i never really read the books like i don't know a single villain of she-hulk's I know there's an Elephant Man guy on one of the covers. Spider Woman, who's her rogues gallery? I I just started thinking that's what that 
had me going is I'm like, wow, there's a lot of heroes where their villains are really bad if I can't think of any of them. Or they're borrowing villains from somebody else. That's what, like, the She-Hulk show I felt like was borrowing. Like, Porcupine was from, like, Tales of Suspense or something, and the, the Wrecking Crew was from Defenders. Like, there are a lot of heroes that don't have a gallery. So think about that. Yeah, they try to establish it sometimes usually like in like the first issues, but a lot of times they like defeat that villain or whatever was like the impetus for them becoming, getting their powers or whatever through some accident. And then they're like, but that character doesn't come back. That's not that interesting anymore. You know, and then and like you say, they're borrowing from other people or they just, it, it, it becomes what we're going to be talking about next, which is just like villain of the week, villain of the month. And they had to come up with quickly just to put out an issue. <laughs> so we know one of the most beloved features Features from Wizard over the years was the Mort of the Month. So in Legion of Losers, Wizard seeks to create the definitive list of Morts by ranking the 10 lamest villains of all time. And a lot of these have appeared as a Mort of the Month in the past, and they're just going more in depth. So kicking things off at number 10 is a doofus called Oddball. They say he faced off against Hawkeye in his first solo miniseries, but he didn't make it into the Disney Plus series. But since the name makes you think of knockoff Madballs toys that you'd buy at a gas station in the 80s and not a supervillain, just allow me to reveal that Oddball's gimmick was juggling. <laughs> he was part of a team of evil jugglers called the Death Throws, which included his brother who juggled bowling pins and called himself Tenpin. Uh, now, neither Oddball nor his team were superhumanly gifted or enhanced for their juggling, but he specifically had an arsenal of bomb balls, fireballs, acid balls, and spike balls to throw at his enemies. And also, his costume just had multicolored circles all over it, I guess in case you couldn't identify identify his brand he's like look i have balls all over my costumes <laughs> what do you uh, think of just the, the general idea of a juggling supervillain oh, that's so stupid it's, <laughs> it's, it's the legion of loser indeed all right number nine is the only female on the list the golden glider is the sister of the flash villain captain cold who borrowed her brother's ice making tech then dated another villain named the top and learned his spinning tricks when the top accidentally died after being exposed to the Flash's super-fast vibrations, Lisa Snart vowed revenge against the fastest man alive while spinning on ice skates dressed in an orange miniskirt and domino mask. Not only that, she had a jewel attached to her costume that allowed her to hypnotize people, make force fields, teleport, emit acid, and any other ability she might need. Okay, this is unfair. <laughs> the Flash does have the lamest of lame rogues gallery but if you've read any of jeff johns's books or mark wade's run on the flash i feel like like you wouldn't no one would ever say his rogues gallery is is lame now now it would be like it's cool like everyone loved the flash show i don't i didn't hear anyone saying oh what terrible villains he had you can turn the most ridiculous villains cool and the golden glider i'm sure is actually one of the coolest villains <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting that you say that, you know, the Flash traditionally has the worst rogues gallery because that kind of plays out as we get uh, further on down the list. But going back to Marvel, weighing in at number eight is the Slug, who is a grotesquely obese criminal that weighs over half a ton and finds ways to funnel drug money through legitimate businesses. That's how he makes his living. But the Slug even teamed up with fellow heavyweight the Kingpin at one point. The two then were foiled 
killed by Spider-Man and Man-Thing. Now, the slug's greatest acts of villainy, though, involve dipping his lackeys in vats of slugs, hence the name, you know, when they fail him, not just for fun, <laughs> but also suffocating his foes in the flabby folds of his flesh, which is, oh, I mean, that, that is a gross way to that take care gross. of anybody yeah. that <laughs> gets in your way, but man. Uh, number seven is Spider-Man villain named Kangaroo, who looked like Fabio. Frank Oliver was an Australian that quit civilian life to live amongst the kangaroos and learn their secrets. Of course, he used this power to become a boxer and had to flee the land down under after almost killing an opponent in the ring and decided to become a villain in America. After being foiled by Spider-Man, he went on to get compressed air implants that enhanced his jumping and punching ability even more. Eventually, Kangaroo was killed by the intense radiation of an isotope that he was hired to steal. Guess he's six feet down under now, Adam. Ah! <laughs> oh the kangaroo see this is just what i was talking about with this fun when they got to the kangaroo they had to know there are no more animals left do not yeah. do it because i mean they i know they had like was he the silver fox i think it was the gray fox who was like this old man thief kind of like in the pig panther like vein and like you know black cat like they've, they've done it all they're, why does spider-man have to have animal villains i don't know <laughs> But returning to DC, number six is Crazy Quilt, who was a painter named Quilt that also happened to be the leader of a crime syndicate, but after being shot, he went blind and it drove him mad. Quilt's blindness seems to be the only excuse, though, for the garish, primary-colored patchwork jumpsuit that he wears as a costume. Kind of like Daredevil's early mustard and maroon outfit. You know, blind guys just don't know what they look like. Uh, eventually, Quilt got a special helmet with lenses that allowed him to see, but also produced intense laser beams or blinding lights that would confuse his foes. Now, according to Wizard, Crazy Quilt's lameness comes from the fact that he always fights teenage heroes like the boy commandos and loses, but especially because his arch nemesis ended up being Robin. Not with Batman, just Dick Grayson Robin. After Quilt actually got an experimental procedure and the surgery restored his eyesight, the Boy Wonder blasted a surgical laser in the villain's eyes and blinded him for good. And that drove him insane. He became homicidal and he got revenge by beating the crap out of the wrong Robin. Because by the time he got around to it, it was now Jason Todd, who had nothing to do with taking away his eyesight. But being the scrapper that he was, the future Red Hood defeated this lamo by himself sent the guy to prison but i just i don't know what's going on here because like half this list are guys in multicolored outfits multicolored. i know I, I immediately thought of polka dot man from the suicide squad movie. how did he yeah. not make it on there yeah did he well, not exist yet we know he actually is really cool like yeah. as james gunn showed us <laughs> All right, number five is the Rainbow Raider, another colorful character, another blind guy in outlandishly multicolored outfit who used special headgear to shoot lights at his foes. Jeez, Wizard really had a bias against the visually challenged Adam. It's, yeah. it's really weird. The main difference, though, was that Roy G. Bivolo was just colorblind and the light from his goggles could actually change people's moods to angry, sad, envious, etc., Mainly, he was heisting great works of art and being thwarted by the Flash. But it's how he made his getaway that Wizard found the most ridiculous. He slid around on a rainbow-colored track of hard light, like some kind of surfing leprechaun Iceman wannabe. 
Oh, this outfit, man. He's just got just a rainbow of colors running down the front and yeah. got his mask and his goggles. I mean, it's just, ah, it's it's wild. The bell tolls four times for the Clock King, a.k.a. William Talkman. Obviously, one look at this guy's literal clock face mask and clock pattern pajamas tells you that it's all very clear to see why he made the list. We have to mention he was a clock repairman who only had six months to live, so the clock was literally ticking on his life. This guy was obsessed. So of course he committed time-related crimes that had to be foiled by Green Arrow and Speedy in the pages of World's Finest Comics, but he just looks so stupid. <laughs> but Adam, this is another example of how the character, he this, this character is amazing in Batman the Animated Series. Obviously they changed his look, so there's plenty of room for them to make that, you know, advancement. Did in they not concept. see the episode of the Clock King? yet like I, I think they're they're going on his comic book counterpart you know it's like maybe in a different meeting he was adapted but look at how he started out stupid <laughs> i think he's in the 60s batman too isn't he oh maybe he was i don't know i think so uh, you know steven sapelis would know yeah all right number three is the duke of oil aka earl a dukeston who was the CEO of Duke's Co. Oil, who was caught in an oil well explosion, which required that his brain transferred into a robot body. While he was waiting for a clone body to be ready for another brain transplant in 20 years, the group responsible for saving his life was a criminal organization called Skull, who forced him to use his robot body to infiltrate the secret headquarters of the Outsiders. He could stretch his limbs, turn his hands, into pinchers and control other machines. The tragedy of the Duke of Oil is that he discovered that his brain didn't survive the explosion after all. Skull just programmed his personality into computer software that controlled the robot body. Distraught, he threw himself into the Pacific Ocean, never to be heard from again. <laughs> He's literally just dressed like a guy from Texas. You know, like just the stereotypical, yeah. he's got the big hat, he's got the suit, the bolo tie, you know. Well, he's Duke Dukeston, right? The Duke of all... <laughs> Dukeston. Dukeston. What is he from? The, what, oh, outsiders. They said Outsiders. The Outsiders comics at DC, so... Yeah. Now, the silver medal goes to Turtle Man. And like we're saying, there's just so many Flash villains on this list. They just keep throwing Flash <laughs> under the bus. But it's kind of a, a buy one, get one deal, because Wizard says there are actually two equally lame guys that adopted this persona. So the first was a Silver Age crook who just happened to move slow and talk slow, which he thought would keep the super speedy guy in red types from being able to catch him. I actually have, like, the greatest Flash stories ever told, this, like, hardcover thing that was released back when the tv show came out and i remember reading the turtle like oh man <laughs> now the other guy though he just called himself turtle instead of turtle man and he created shell-based gadgets to commit his crimes like a, a one-time use shell rocket pack a ray that made other people move slowly you know in theory again if we're looking at you know exact opposite he should have been the flash's arch enemy but in actuality he was just really dumb <laughs> You can't be the opposite of a fast guy by being slow because, you know, the Flash can't actually stop. It's not like he's always running, you know. He's not. Yeah, he can be slow. <laughs> All right. Soaring into the number one position of lameness, it's the one and only Kite Man, a.k.a. Charles Chuck Brown. Yes, his name is Charlie Brown and flies on a kite. Oh, brother, no tragic origin here. He's just another Silver Age crook looking for ways to evade Batman or Hawkman while committing crimes. So he decided kites would be his gimmick. Big kites, little kites, a plethora of kites. 
Of course, for comedy purposes, he was recently revived on the Harley Quinn animated series and became so popular he's getting his own spinoff series. We should also mention that his girlfriend on the series is Golden Glider. Yes, Golden Glider. The same girl who appeared at number nine on this list is DC Animation just referencing Wizard List to create their current crop of cartoon content, Adam. All signs point to yes, I think. Do you see a revamp angle where one of these characters could become formidable foe against the forces of justice? It's weird. I mean, Crazy Quilt is the one, because I actually read that comic. My friend had that issue where he's beating up Jason Todd, and Jason Todd's like, why are you mad at me? I don't understand. Like, and he seems scary, even though he looks so dumb. And I feel Uh like if you change the outfit, and you take this blind character who is like driven to madness because he almost gets, you know, his sight back and then it goes away again, but he already had criminal tendencies. Like, I think like also you could play a lot, just like we were saying with, you know, the the Clock King, the concept of time from just like a literary perspective, plot ideas, you could do so much with that. The idea of sight, of seeing, you could do a lot with the crazy quilt character, but get rid of the name quilt. It has nothing to do with him, except if you want to say his outfit was stitched together together like a quilt of this list like you said you've seen characters that have already been redeemed and yeah. we but is there another one here that you feel like well maybe done right you could make it menacing you know i am thinking now oddball like i think you could do something interesting with oddball i don't know what but he his costume is kind of neat maybe he's too much like polka dot man like he could throw <laughs> balls <laughs> well, I just think for comedy purposes, people are going to be making ball jokes all over the place if you get him in today's. Yeah, he should be in like, yeah, he should be really in the She-Hulk show. Let's be yeah. where he belongs. That would have been fun. All right. Well, so as we go and look through the rest of the dark book here, obviously we've gone through a lot of lists, a lot of designations mm-hmm. they were working on here, but the, the majority of the book, like the back end is just profiles of villains across all the major publishers at this time you even get like really obscure characters like dr demonicus who they say originally appeared in the marvel godzilla comics before he eventually like continued on in the marvel universe fought like avengers west coast and stuff like that but also like kazar's brother Parnival. Uh, which just cracks me up. He looks very menacing, but he's got a terrible name. There's also something in here we didn't go through, but you know they loved creating these fake documents. And so there is an Arkham Asylum, you know, case study, like folder, you know, Manila folder. Then you flip the pages and it shows you all these different, you know, designations for, you know, the, the parts of the Arkham Asylum, what they're for, but also the people who are there, the staff members, the inmates. Interestingly enough, they actually list actually my favorite version of Clayface like I love Clayface from the animated series but this Preston Payne who is the third Clayface they say a victim of hyper pituitarism (laughs) Payne grew up friendless and alone apparently at the expense of his sanity in an attempt to make himself more attractive he became malleable and now must wear a containment suit to maintain his form he's not to be asked questions dealing with identity and there's a great story that Alan Moore wrote about this guy where he's living in a department store like hiding out and after hours he comes out it's like the movie mannequin he's in love with a mannequin and he has this whole relationship and like this jealousy and stuff what issue is this where 
what what is that? I, I'll, I'll have to send you the link it, I, I read it in a collection of alan moore dc Comics stories a trade they put out but it's okay. so good you're like oh this is a great horror movie they also they list batman because if you if you remember they had that series that the first few issues were batman being admitted to arkham i think it was shadow of the bat shadow of the bat yeah it was that one that was just kind of a fun extra that we'll, we'll post social media there's also a look at the thunderbolts because i think they're just trying to help that book survive somehow because there's like well they're villains posing you know as heroes and there's interesting things happening but as they had just recently reviewed the book they did not think it was very interesting after <laughs> the first year then i, I do want to mention the thing obviously that i'm always looking for is the brian douglas ahern comic strips that they do for these specials and they he had him create one called the super villain reunion which imagined how a high school reunion style event featuring comic book supervillains would go down and i think the best gag speaking of the thunderbolts is when they all show up and then the red skull says but you are heroes not villains why would you be invited and citizen v responds oh um right wrong reunion ours must be down the street pardon us step lively crew blast almost blew at that time <laughs> so there's i mean just there's a, bu a bunch of fun little silly things going on tons of you know villains of course crammed into one panel yeah and then the final page also contains some comedy as wizard presents a happy burger fast food job application filled out by victor von doom now they're just some of the categories are hilarious under social security you know where they ask for his social security number he writes doom is secure and under special skill where it asks his typing speed the doctor responds incredulously typing typing bah doom has no need for such medial tasks as typing besides doom's insolent shorthand teacher displeased doom and was swiftly beheaded also under hobbies it says doom plays doom <laughs> So very 90s <laughs> activity for Dr. Doom there. So, Oh my goodness. Uh, but as we've gone through this Dark Book 98, which is the last of the Dark Books, so they waited four years, they did not do it again. What are your final thoughts? Were, were there any like insights that stood out to you in our discussion? I feel like I learned a bit about villains, you know, the different categories and stuff. But let's be real. If, if this was a book on shelves today and we were doing a review of it, I would say do not waste your money unless you like lists it's list after list after so well you know i got a few things here and there it's it, it's not that fun of a book to yeah and I, I think it was just like they were just trying to crank out as many specials and maybe a few yeah. too many planned for this year because this... even like you know this extra you know poster with dark side by joe casada jimmy Pagliotti, i'm like nobody wants that we want dark side poster like they should have given us something cooler in the, the issue cover. the cover is the thing you buy it yeah. for that is a great jim lee cover but they do have a section here that we didn't cover which is the criminal catalog it talks about like the villainous gadgets or their hideouts or the paraphernalia yeah. associated with the villains. So one of those items might have been a fun thing to include. Like, I'm thinking, like, what if you actually got, I don't know how they would do it, but like one of the Mandarin's rings or like a pop-up like Green Goblin Pumpkin Bomb. <laughs> Just something fun like that that would be a little a little sillier than just a poster. Another do, it's only a one-sided poster. That disappoints me. They always do two-sided. Because my memory is is not very good, do we find out who wins the Thunderbolts 
contest. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure it is reported in an issue, okay. and we just didn't like report on it at the time because we hadn't read this yet. So yes. now, like, I'm really going to have to track it down. I'm sure there's a fan out there that knows. Although, now that I'm thinking about it, I think we did just get a heads up from one of our listeners. Let me, I'm going to go look real quick right here in my Wizard okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. Comics short box. Oh, I totally got it. Oh. <laughs> yes. Okay. Oh, so, I have that one. Oh, you you have this one too. What issue is that? This is issue number 19. Yeah, so it says featuring the winner of the wizard create a villain contest, the coming of charcoal, the burning man. <laughs> wow. I, I, I don't know how I just blanked on that. I should have pulled that up here. Yeah. And then this is like a villain who's in it, you know, throughout. Like he's, it's not just like a one time, hey, look, here he is. All right. This is a villain we'll keep an eye on. You know, it's like, no, they actually have him here. I, I don't have it anymore. I sold it. <laughs> I sold it in a box. Of... <laughs> nope. Nope. Unfortunately, still very cool. I wonder if did they give, yeah, charcoal created by Wallace and Nadia Frost. So a couple that put it together or brother and sister or something. I don't know. They also sound like super villains. They have yeah. perfect <laughs> names. Hey, what a discovery. We found the winner. All right. But thank you, everybody, for checking out uh, this episode. We hope you enjoyed the ride. We're sure so many of you have opinions on who the best villains are, books that you've read, you know, that you were reading for a long time. Oh, but you forgot about these. Like, you know, I even saw the body doubles on the list from Resurrection Man. You know, it's like, can I, can I really highlight them? They were just hot girls who could kill you, you know, <laughs> but it, it was still a fun thing to see. So we want you to stay tuned, though, because we will be coming back. We'll be covering issue 88 of Wizard, getting back into the main continuity of the wizard magazine so we have a lot to discuss there but of course we want to make sure that you're checking out everything on the youtube channel you know we did just release the eric larson episode of the wizard files but you can watch a video version of that if you want on our youtube channel as well as right after this we'll just let you know we're recording another haul video because mike grabbed some amazing stuff found some, you know, key issues where you wouldn't expect it. It's some multi-packs and other things. So we're going to be sharing that. So there's a lot more of those coming out. You want to stay tuned for what we have coming up on the YouTube channel, but also here on the main feed, as well as patreon.com forward slash wizards comics, where you get the unedited, uncut episodes, especially our 90s super cinema, which we just had a really fun episode in February talking about Batman and Robin, where we just had a huge panel because everybody who ever hosted on the show has wanted to talk about batman and robin so yeah so just get over there five bucks a month find out what perks excite you most we keep adding more and more people over there so a growing community for sure stay connected with us on social media at wizards comics speaking of staying connected mike and i've been connecting with a lot of podcasters and we've been invited as guests on a couple of shows in case you want a little bit more of what we have to offer over here mike was recently on the hack slash podcast where he was discussing a the crow hack slash crossover comic series and i was invited by the same host on to a different podcast the sal Buscema era uh, which was talking about a spider-man the puma story over a few issues so uh, that will be forthcoming as well we'll keep you posted but also if you can't get enough villain talk uh, i've been invited on the after lunch podcast with a bunch of my friends over there to do a super villain sweet 16 event uh, where we are going to be trying to narrow down the top super villains so we'll 
see how those brackets work out. But just wanted to keep you posted about some of those fun things that are happening out there. Other ways to hear our brand of uh, 90s comics nonsense. But until next time, keep your books bagged and boarded. This has been a presentation of the Retro Network.